Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast, brought to you by the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Svi Hirschfield, and I'm excited to be here with you each week for a thoughtful and engaging discussion about the weekly Torah portion. Each episode, I'll be joined by a wonderful faculty member from Pardes to dive deep into the text, exploring its relevance and insights for our lives today. We will aspire to be creative, personal, and a little brave as we leave no stone unturned, seeking to bring out meaning and significance from each Parsha. And here's a request from us. If you enjoy our conversations, please take a moment to leave a five-star review for the podcast. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important discussions. So whether you're a seasoned Torah scholar or a curious beginner, we invite you to join us on this journey of learning and discovery. With that, let's dive in and explore this week's Parsha together. Hello, everyone. This is Svi Hirschfield, another Parsha podcast. Welcome to new listeners. Welcome back to previous listeners. I'm delighted today because my friend, neighbor, colleague, and teacher, an all-around really great guy, Rabbi Michael Hatton, expert educator from the Pardes Institute, is with us to talk about the Parsha. Welcome. Good morning, Michael Hatton. It is a pleasure to be here, Tzvi, and I'm very excited about this week's Parsha. He is excited, folks. I can see it in his voice. Okay, so let's jump right in and see what we have. So this Parsha is very odd. It starts out with the Menorah. It goes on to Livi'im. We're still very much in the mode of what's happened previously. The trumpets are there, and then suddenly there's this dramatic shift. So help us understand, Michael, what's happening now in this Parsha and the changes that we're seeing. Okay, so if I wanted to sort of frame it from a slightly larger perspective, I might say, you know, the theme of this book, Tzvi, is the theme of journeying, and we're on our way to the land. That's the destination. There are all sorts of adventures along the way, all sorts of setbacks and failures, and in the end, it's going to be derailed by the mission of the spies. So that's sort of the larger picture that we're dealing with in our particular Parsha. The journey is actually beginning. Well, you really should say spoiler alert before you give away the end, but that's okay. So help us understand where you think we are in the story right now. Okay. The book began with a census of the Israelites, and that was really about preparing them for entering the land and distributing it. We went on to talk about the arrangement of the Machaneh, the camp, which really speaks to Jewish unity with the Mishkan at the center. We spoke about the Levites and their assignments, and we kind of tied up some loose ends with sacrificial matters. And before you know it, we are actually preparing to leave Mount Sinai and journey towards the land. This begins with a Passover celebration, the construction of the silver trumpets, which are going to be signaling us, and then this incredibly wonderful conversation between Moshe and Chovav, where Moshe invites him to join them for the journey. So let's just understand that the Pesach Sheni, right? The second Pesach is to include everyone in the covenant. So now we're all prepared. So what I expect to find for the first-time reader, I wonder if there are any first-time readers of the Bible anymore, the first-time reader, I'm expecting that in the coming chapters, we're going to start entering the land. We're literally going to cross the finish line. And instead, something else happens. I think that's the way the narratives are set up. They're structured for us to be anticipating something incredibly positive about to happen. I just want to note that as Moshe turns to Chovav, he will say to him, Nos'im anachnu al hamakom asher amar Hashem. 
we are going to that place that God told us he would give us, and Moshe is including himself in the process, which is to say in Moshe's mind, yes, they are on the way, they are journeying, they are going to enter the land imminently. Then the journey commences. Even though I kind of know what happens next And there's this very interesting point in the Parsha of the two nuns, the two backward nuns, signifying something. So tell us more broadly what's going to happen next and the significance of the nuns and that famous pasuk of Ahibin Soharom. Okay, so the good news is I think most of us are familiar with these two verses because we recite them every time we take the Torah out of the Ark. When the ark began its travels, Moshe said, Arise, God, and scatter your enemies. May those that hate you flee from before you. And as you said, that particular verse and the one that follows is bracketed by this curious feature in the Torah scroll itself of two inverted nuns. So I want to point out, first of all, these verses that we recite when we take out the Torah, I'm sure some of us are wondering why on earth are we calling on God to scatter our enemies when we're taking the Torah out of the ark? And the answer is because the verses come from this Parsha. And this Parsha is about the journey to the land. And the journey to the land is going to involve us having to confront our enemies. So therefore, there's a prayer here that we should be victorious and successful. Well, I just want to insert here, some people familiar with shul politics might say that when you're taking out the Torah and synagogue, there are some people who want to scatter their enemies and that's their moment. But that's a great read. I like that. That's a little too negative, so I won't go there. So we have these two verses. I realize I interrupted you. Tell us what's going to happen next, maybe, and then come back to the significance of these verses that seem to announce we're ready to conquer the land. Okay. What happens next is completely completely unanticipated. The people begin to complain. They cry out wanting meat. There is a serious crisis of leadership where Moshe feels unable to actually lead the people. That's going to culminate with Miriam and Aharon accusing Moshe of something concerning the Isha HaKushit, the Ethiopian woman. And before you know it, we're going to be led into the episode of the spies in chapter 13 and chapter 14. And as I said, the entire journey is going to be derailed. The people of Israel will be condemned to perish in the wilderness. So one way or another, some way or another, we went from something which was incredibly anticipatory, positive, enthusiastic, and we ended up with uncertainty, with pessimism, and with paralysis. Wow. Well, at least that's a familiar place for many of us in the Jewish people over the centuries, right? We're very comfortable with difficulty and challenge and failure and so on. It's success maybe that scares us, but we might come back to that at the end of our Parsha discussion as well. So let's come back. So there's this huge transition here. Correct. And I'd like you to explore why you think this transition happens and how this fits in to the two nuns, this ancient form of bracketing off these two verses. So I want to actually start from an obscure corner of the Mishnah. In Seder Taharot, there is a Masechet, a tractate called the Tractate Yadayim, which deals with washing one's hands. In fact, a lot of our halachot about hand washing come from this tractate. In the context of that discussion, the Mishnah tells us that a Sefer Torah maintains its sanctity as long as it has 85 intact letters. That is to say, even if some of the letters are faded, most of the letters have fallen off. If there are 85 intact letters, that Sefer Torah is still holy. And believe it or not, the Mishnah says the reason for that is there are two verses in our parsha, Vayihi bin Sawa Ha'aron, the ones that we're talking about, and Uvnu Choyomar, do the math, 
Those verses contain 85 letters. And so, so what? So those verses of 85 letters, why do those verses symbolize a whole Torah? Right, that's sort of the implication that somehow these two verses are a self-contained volume of the Torah. That is exactly the implication. In the discussion in the Gemara, in Masechet Shabbat, that is in fact the view of Rebbe. Rebbe says the following, it is an astonishing statement. He says, basically, these two nuns indicate that this particular series of two verses is a self-contained volume. And believe it or not, Rebbe says, we don't have a chumash, which is five volumes of the Torah. We have, I don't know what to call it, we have seven volumes of the Torah. And we have a verse in Mishlei that supports it. The verse says in chapter 9, Wisdom has built its house and has set down its seven columns that support the structure. Those are the seven volumes of the Torah because it turns out, according to this calculation, that the book of Numbers is actually three separate volumes. What does Rebbe gain by this explanation? Why think of two verses as a separate volume? Why divide up the book of Bamidbar into three what is going on here? Help us understand. Okay, so I think, you know, first of all, literarily, Rebbe is recognizing that whatever happened before these two verses is fundamentally different than what happened afterwards. Before these two verses, like we were talking about, the people are preparing to journey, and they are full of expectation, and there is so much positive energy in the air. And after these two verses, everything begins to go downhill very, very quickly. And Rebbe recognizes really what he's saying is that these two verses are a turning point. They're a turning point for Sefer Bemidbar. You might argue they're a turning point for the entire Torah. Because now it turns out there are three volumes of the Torah before these two verses and three volumes after. And these two verses are really the linchpin that serves as the pivot for the entire thing. So I'm not answering your question. I'm actually strengthening it. Yeah, that really is frustrating me. So help us out here. Why do you think this transition happens, the failure happens, and this positioning of these verses, what's it supposed to teach us about the nature of this failure and perhaps even in the future how we could avoid it? Those are great questions. You know, I think an argument could be made that the fundamental message of Sefer Bimidbar is if you are trying to get to your destination then there's a certain protocol which is going to stack the odds in your favor of getting there successfully. And that protocol includes being unified. The people of Israel are all together around that Mishkan. It's about being organized. And perhaps most importantly, it's about having some sort of set of values which serves as your lodestar so that you can follow it. Even when the going gets tough, you don't lose your way. So from that perspective, I follow the verse. The verse is not describing what did happen. Are you saying the verse was describing what was supposed to happen, but didn't? They didn't take the Aron. Correct. The Aron should have served as the center point of their journey. That was the idea. That was the goal. And that was really the recipe for success. And so these two verses are placed here in order to mark that. Vayihi bin Soah Aron means if we want to get there and get there safely and successfully, the ark has to be at the center and everything that's suggested by that. The ark is, of course, a symbol for many things, but most prominently, it's God's presence on earth. It's the Torah that God communicates to us. It's our ability to come together as a people and to embrace that. 
And it's where, supposedly, when it's in the Mishkan, God continues to speak to Moshe and speak to us. This is supposed to be the source of how we're supposed to operate. I cheated and look at your source sheet. This seems to then connect Rebbe's view with the other view that says that these two nuns, these verses, are breaking up two, you know, puranot, two negative events. And the problem is the negative event of the people complaining we understand. But that opinion says there was actually an earlier negative event or phenomena that he says is alluded to in the text. Could you elaborate on that Correct. for us? So that's the view of Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel. And Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel actually says these two verses are not actually recorded in the correct chronological sequence. They don't belong here. They belong with the protocol of how the camp journeys back at the beginning of the book. They're placed here in order to break up what would have been a series of three setbacks. And we know in our tradition in many areas, the number three signifies some sort of a chazaka, some sort of a presumption or an assumption of what's actually going to be happening. A change of state, so to speak. We're in a different place. It's been determined. We're in a different place. Correct. So what was the first one that we don't find in the text that comes before Vayibin Saw? What was the first Puranut. Okay, so the truth is that the Talmudic discussion on that is a little bit cryptic, and it really takes the Rishonim to unravel the mystery, in particular Ramban or Nachmanides. And he quotes a Midrash that says the following. It's such a striking statement. If you remember, the journey commences with the people leaving God's mountain. Vayisu mehar Hashem derech shloshet yamim. They journeyed from God's mountain a distance of three days, and the ark journeyed before them. That's immediately before our verses in question. Ramban quotes a midrash that says they journeyed from God's mountain kitinok haboreach mibet hasefer, like a young student running away from school. I cannot bear the thought that we have to do more learning, that we're going to get more homework. I just want to get out of here. It's kind of like, you know, the end of school. And so the Jewish people, the argument is already at that moment when they're supposed to start the journey, according to this theory, they're running away from the Torah. They're running away from Har Sinai. They're running away from God's presence, if you will, or the immediacy of God's presence, which is upsetting. But of course, the question I have to ask you, you're going to have to put the Jewish people on the couch now. Why? Why, after the incredible things that they've seen and they've witnessed, why would they be like school children running away? What is it about keeping the Torah in their midst that they find overwhelming, undesirable? Listen, I think that the Torah, as we know, can be a source of inspiration and a source of guidance and a source of meaning for our lives, but it also demands of us. There are responsibilities associated with the Torah or with somehow embracing the Torah as an important part of our lives. And I think that's what frightens the people most. So about to leave Mount Sinai and journey towards the land, they know full well that their lives are never going to be the same. And so therefore, this journey is actually undertaken with a huge amount of trepidation. So they don't see going into the land necessarily as the culmination of their freedom. You're saying going into the land represents for them the taking on of the ultimate responsibility to build a communal and national life according to the Torah and covenant with God. And maybe for a lot of them, who knows how many, they want to run away from that. And I would say for a lot of us as well, frankly. I mean, you're talking about some sort of a challenge that the Jewish people have been confronting for thousands of years. 
in different forms. You're going to have to say more. You're suggesting, and I'm smiling and he's smiling, although maybe we shouldn't be smiling about it, that this phenomena of the Jewish people not wanting to take on the full implication of their role and mission, that story has continued and is continuing even now. Correct. I think that is the case in the same way that in our individual lives, taking on responsibility is sometimes overwhelming, whatever the responsibility is. And so when we're talking about some sort of a vision for the people of Israel and their role in the world, and that vision includes obligations slash responsibilities, that's going to be a frightening prospect, especially for freed slaves. Since you brought us there, and I agree with everything you just said, we of course then have to look at where the Jewish people are today. In what sense would you like the Aron, whatever that symbolizes for you, Torah, God's presence, ultimate mission, in what sense do you think we are running away to a degree? In what areas of our Jewish life would you like us to work on to bring the Aron back to its rightful place of leadership or centrality? Listen, I think it's useful also to reframe it a little more positively. It's clear that we have an opportunity in Jewish history that we haven't had for a very long time, which is a sovereign state. And that implies all sorts of responsibilities and all sorts of possibilities and potentials. The vision of the Aron is to place our Jewish values, our unity, and our sense of God's presence in our lives at the center of whatever it is that we're trying to construct here. And when you look, I'm pushing you here. He's got a little bit of panic. I don't blame him, folks. When you look at where the Jewish people are today, what areas would you like to see us work on to bring the Aron more at the center? Or if you choose to be more critical, where do you see us not doing what we need to do? I think we all realize that we need more unity, and unity is critical for whatever mission it is we are trying to fulfill in the world. The vision of the Ark was the vision of the people of Israel encamped around it, unified. That's a very tall order, obviously. But I think that that's a starting point for achievement as a people. I want to push you on this because I've been pushing myself on this. The term unity on a t-shirt looks great. And in Hebrew, they say achdut, and everybody gets up and talks about achdut. At every demonstration here in Israel, everybody talks about the importance of achdut, unity. But as we all know, the word isn't the problem. The problem is in order to achieve unity, everyone's going to have to give up on something of their ideal where it clashes with the other person's ideal. And I guess what I would like to challenge you with, what are the things you feel each side has to give up on in order to make this unified vision possible? That's a really, really difficult question. That's why I'm here, folks, to ask the difficult questions. You know, I would say that it might be a slogan, it's true, but I would suspect that probably most of us in this country, and perhaps even as Jewish people, actually agree on many, many things. The media, sensationalist as it is, likes to highlight the things that we disagree about. But I think actually many of us agree about some fundamental premises such as the importance of peoplehood, such as the centrality of Jewish values, such as some sort of a vision of a brighter future. And how we're going to achieve that is going to be a function of our ability to really, I guess, I mean, I'm sort of speaking to myself here, step out of our own echo chambers and be able to listen. So I'm going to push one more time to put you in the hot seat, but I'll put myself in the hot seat first. 
If somebody had asked me that question, I would look at it and say, it's possible people on the right are going to have to give up part of their dream of all of Eretz Yisrael, of the Jewish people maintaining sovereignty over the entire land. It might require people from the Orthodox side to give up on some of their aspirations, what a Jewish state looks like, giving up coercion, giving up some of the demands of observance on the side of secular people, giving up perhaps on some of the powers of the chief rabbinate. And it seems to me that people on the left might indeed have to give up some of their demands of a public square that does not have a lot of Jewish content and demands, whether it's public transportation, certain neighborhoods on Shabbat, or El Al not flying on Shabbat, that Shabbat observance and kashrut are important to huge percentage of the society, and therefore their freedoms in that area might have to be curtailed. And they might also have to give up on other areas in which religious values and demands need to play a role. I'll go out even more on a limb. They might have to give up on their demand that all Haredim serve in the army by recognizing that Haredi Jewish life cannot adapt itself to an institution like the army. And they might have to compromise with that, perhaps similarly to the way they have to compromise with the Arab population and the way they serve the country as well. So I'm putting out there that idea that people might actually have to compromise on some core values in the name of this coming together and pursuing a shared mission together. Listen, if you're contemplating a Knesset run, I'm going to be voting for you. Wow, you heard that here first, folks. What is your take then looking forward? What is a small step you'd like to see different communities take to achieve this vision of moving forward with the Aron at the center for modern day Jewish people? For me, I think the most basic step is to change the tone of the discourse, which is incredibly accusatory and negative and marginalizing, and we have to be able to talk about things in a way which is respectful. And I really believe that. I really, really believe that. Unfortunately, many of our elected officials have not accepted that premise, and the discourse is unbelievably poisoned. And I think that that's the small step, but a very significant one for making progress. And that brings us back to our Parsha, the crisis of leadership. Moshe himself doesn't believe he has the power anymore to unify the people around the Aron. And then at the end, as you mentioned, that the crisis of leadership seems to be one of the primary causes. Those children are running away from school, but strong leadership has to figure out either how to keep them there or make them want to stay. But that also seems to be an element here of what's missing. You know, who am I to critique Moshe? But still, right? An element that's missing here. And maybe that's another area we have to point to. We need better leadership. We need improved leadership in order to get us across the finish line. Listen, I think at the very end of the day, the people of Israel will make it to the land and they will enter it successfully, but it's going to take an awful lot of work in order to get to that point. 40 years of work, actually. You know, sometimes we have time horizons which are very short. We want instant solutions for whatever the problem is, whether it's personal or national. And there's also some patience that we have to exercise when it comes to talking about these incredibly lengthy transformations that have to take place. So what you are saying, Michael Hatton, is you are hopeful that the time we're reading this Parsha next year, things might actually have improved. 
Or maybe 10 years. I'm always hopeful. Okay, maybe 10 podcasts from now, at least of this Parsha. It might take some time, but you're hopeful. Well, I can't think of a better note to leave on that. So when you are doing this Parsha, this Shabbat, if you're going to hear it in synagogue or read it on your own, look out for those two nuns. Michael Hatton is telling you. Be aware that you are witnessing a big, big transition point, a difficult transition point, but you're also telling us don't lose hope. Don't get lost in this Parsha or even the next few of the story of failure. There's some successes coming up, and you still believe in the model. You still believe that there is an Aron, there is a Jewish people, there is a land of Israel, and there are good things we can do. Keep the vision of the Ark at the center and follow it. That seems to be what the Parsha is telling us. Well, that sounds like excellent advice. So we're going to end there. Michael Hatton, thank you very, very much. As always, it's a pleasure learning with you and hearing from you. And we hope you do this again very soon. Thank you, Tzvi. It's been a pleasure for me as well. Well, everyone, that's it for Parshat Baalotcha. For all of us here at Pardes, we want to wish you a Shabbat Shalom and keep listening. And if you want to send me some feedback, please email me at zvih at pardes.org.il. And we look forward to hearing from you. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.